Christmas. It's a joyous time for many. It's a time of feasting and celebrating the birth of our Savior. For some of us, though, Christmas carries a touch of sadness. Those who have lost loved ones can have their celebration tempered a bit by memories of Christmases gone by. Some have lost jobs or have experienced health issues. Others, excuse me, others, Christians included, have bought into the secular celebration of the season that kicked off this past weekend. We celebrate the birth of a, of a Savior who came to earth and became poor by going out and spending too much money buying gifts that people really don't need. It's fun, but sometimes we do go overboard. To them, it's all about going shopping for that perfect gift and subtly, or not so subtly, letting others know what perfect gift they would like to have. It's a busy time. There's shopping to do. There's houses to decorate, parties to attend. And it can be a bit overwhelming for some. And on Christmas Day or the day afterward, when all the wrapping paper has been cleaned up, the dishes washed, some reflect on all that has gone on and think, is that all there is? While it is a myth that suicides increase during the holidays, there is an increase in people becoming depressed as the reality sometimes doesn't quite match up with the expectation. In the last year and a half in particular, we've seen an increase in the number of people who seem to have lost hope. And the Christmas season can amplify that feeling of hopelessness. I'm a big fan of Advent. I uh, didn't start really celebrating it until, uh, until Jan and I came here. It just wasn't something in our tradition to celebrate. But I believe that celebrating Advent can be a great help in keeping the Christmas season and everything else that goes along with it in the proper perspective. During Advent, we look back at the longing of God's people for the coming of the promised Messiah. By the time of the first century, some had given up hope that the Messiah would ever come. Some of the religious leaders were blaming the people. They were saying, well, Messiah will come as soon as you people get your act together and start keeping Torah. It had been 400 years since God had spoken at all, let alone the 4,000 or so that they had been waiting. Now, looking at Genesis chapter 3, we can imagine the hopelessness that the first humans felt. Eve had been tricked by, her, by the serpent and disobeyed her creator. Adam also had disobeyed. Evidently, he was aware of what he was doing. God had come looking for them and discovered them hiding because their innocence was gone. They were afraid. They were ashamed. In verse 11, God asks Adam if he has eaten the fruit from the tree that was forbidden. Adam steps up like a man and blames his wife. (laughs) 
When God asks Eve what she has done, she turns to blame the serpent, possibly shooting daggers at Adam with her eyes. God then turns to the serpent and doesn't bother to ask. He simply pronounces judgment. In verse 14, the serpent is sentenced to slithering on its belly in the dust of the earth. Seems pretty hopeless, doesn't it? Man is blown. He's about to be driven from the garden. Now we come to the good part. In verse 15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Other translations say bruise um, his head. God tells the serpent that there will be enmity between the serpent and the woman and between the serpent's offspring and the offspring of the woman. Then God says the offspring of the woman will bruise or crush the serpent's head and that the serpent will bruise the offspring's heel. Now, this verse has actually been interpreted in a few different ways. Back in 1899, the Catholic douay Reims Bible translates it as, I will put enmities between thee and the woman, and thy seed and her seed. She shall crush thy head, and thou shalt lie in wait for her head, for her heel, excuse me. The douay Reims was translated from Jerome's Latin Vulgate. And it seems there is a discussion within the Catholic Church as to whether Jerome was right in his translation and Mary was the serpent crusher. There are Catholics who do believe that Mary actually was the one that crushed the head of the serpent. The other translations that I looked at, including two newer Catholic ones, translate the Hebrew as he and his. The Jewish Translation Society translates this verse I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or descendants and hers, i.e. her offspring. They will strike at your head and you shall strike at their heel. So they have that as a plural. And because of that translation of a particular Hebrew word as plural, There are some who believe that verse 15 is not a direct messianic prophecy, even though in some sense it is, it is fulfilled. But they believe that it's not a specific prophecy, but rather a statement of the enmity between the demonic, the serpent's descendants, and the human race, Eve's descendants. Now, it's true that there has been a great deal of enmity, between Satan and humans. The devil has always tried to destroy the crown of God's creation. Others note (coughs) that the Hebrew word in question can be translated as singular or plural, depending on the context. In this case, they argue that the context is speaking in the singular. So therefore, the word should be translated as singular. Now, there is a sense 
in which there is and has been enmity between the physical descendants of Eve and the spiritual descendants of Satan, obviously. We are in a fight against the powers of darkness in this world. And we do win battles by the power of the Holy Spirit. But there's only been one who has completely defeated Satan. And verse 15 is the first announcement. If we take it as a singular. First announcement, there there was going to be one who would come and defeat the serpent, crushing his head while having his own heel bruised. When Abel was born, it's possible that Eve may have thought that he was the promised one. Because she praised God and says, I have begotten a man. I don't know if the Hebrew could be translated the man or not, but it's possible that maybe she thought he was the one. Of course, we know that she was mistaken if she did. Through the centuries, the people of God waited and waited and waited. Prophets came and went, each of them proclaiming the coming of a Messiah, an anointed one, who would be the Redeemer, who would end the captivity of God's people. There are roughly 80 or so prophecies of the Messiah that Jesus fulfilled. Many of those are types and figures found in people, such as Isaac, Joseph, David, or feasts and rituals observed by Israel, even things like the objects found in the tabernacle. The promised Redeemer was foretold as the Son of God. In Psalm 2, verse 7. The Son of Man in Daniel 7, 13. He was promised as one born of a virgin in Isaiah 7, 14. The Lion of the tribe of Judah in Genesis 49, 8 through 12. And in Isaiah 11, 1, the shoot from the stump of Jesse. As we go through our Advent series, we will see how the prophets and the types and figures of the Old Testament all pointed to one thing, that the God of Israel himself would come and be with them. Isaiah 9 states clearly that the one to come would be God. We will look at the clear record of Jesus' line and how Matthew, in the first chapter of his gospel, clearly states that this one he is proclaiming fulfills the prophecy of God coming to be with his people. And we will finish with Jesus' own words in Matthew 28, promising to be with his people always. The people of Israel waited roughly 4,000 years or so for the promise to be fulfilled. Through a nomad existence, to captivity in Egypt, through desert wanderings and entering the promised land, through captivity in Babylon, 400 years of silence from God, And the oppression of Rome, the people of Israel always had before them the promise that God would come and be with them. Now, it's been approximately 2,000 years since Jesus went to be with the Father, leaving his disciples with the promise that he would come again. Empires have risen and fallen. Kings have come and gone. Things have changed a great deal over the millennia. But in some ways, nothing has changed. 
Evil people still do evil things. The stronger still try to control the weaker. We still grow old. Disease still takes many of us way too early. We can relate to Longfellow when he wrote, And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. That's why Christmas can be a sad time for folks. It can be easy to focus on what isn't there. And if we let ourselves get caught up in how the culture around us celebrates. But wait, there is more. More to Christmas than presents and parties. Even more than a babe in a manger and all that comes with it. Longfellow continues. Then peal the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. Christmas is the culmination and fulfillment of all the longing and waiting of God's people for their God to come and be with them. Through all the things they experience, good and bad, the faithful among them clung to the hope that the promised seed of the woman would come and would crush the serpent's head. The promised one came, and God has been with his people ever since. We look ahead now to the time when he comes again. But we have something that God's people didn't have waiting for the Messiah. We actually have our King, our Messiah, dwelling in us through the Holy Spirit. It wasn't just a waiting. Yes, we are waiting for him to come back. But while until he does, he's here with us. And, and that is huge. You know, the past year and a half has been rough on a lot of people. It seems that every time you turn around, there is more bad news. Uh, people were calling this year 2020.2. Uh, and in some ways, they're right. Many are scared, angry, or both. The business of proclaiming dire troubles to come continues to be quite profitable. People are looking for answers. And unfortunately, many are willing to believe anything that comes their way. That's not the way that we, who have the hope of the resurrection, and who are children of the one who holds it all in his hands, should live. Brothers and sisters, I want you to be encouraged. No matter what you are going through. No matter what you have gone through. Remember this. God is with you. You have been rescued and redeemed. By the precious blood of the one who went into death, kicked out the serpent's teeth and crushed his head. And then came out the other side victorious. We have his promise in Romans 8 that there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of our father. 
As we look back at the waiting for the king to come the first time, we also look ahead to his return to finally take the throne and set everything right. We believe that at the, as the promise of his first century was fulfilled, so will the promise of his return. And we can live in hope because that hope will be rewarded. How goes the world? It's that season. The world, <laughs> the world goes not well, but take heart. The kingdom comes. Maranatha.